0: The MSC Podcast. We hope this message works. We kind of started the conversation, just the introduction, to say that we're going to explore some new possibilities. And so, what I would love to do in the next few sessions is to explore your story in the context of the big story, or what I call the meta narrative Um, now the meta narrative that we have that many Christians are familiar with and tell me whether you're in the same tradition as I am but many are familiar with the story that says there was a time long long time ago where everything was perfect and as it should be Um, no death no problems no issues like that but then, oh my word, the two people put in charge of that messed up, made the wrong choice. Uh, we lost that paradise. We lost that perfect world. But we kind of hope that one day we will attain that perfection and that heavenly existence again. So are you familiar with that meta-narrative? Yeah. And we kind of uh, inserted our story In the middle of that now, I think what the maybe unintended, maybe intended, but the consequences of understanding the meta narrative in that way is basically it gives the it gives a sense of lack, this nostalgic longing for what we have lost. Its message is basically. You are not what you're supposed to be. You are not in the environment that you're supposed to be in. I mean, everything's fundamentally really not the way it should be. And, um, but we have this hope that one day it will be restored to what we imagine perfection to be. Now, why is the stories we believe so important? It's because we participate in creating our reality. See, two people can experience the same event, but experience it very differently. Because we don't just experience things the way things are, we experience things the way we are. Um, we participate in creating our own reality. I, maybe to, to kind of explore that idea a bit further... On one of our trips, we actually lived here in the UK for ten years, and one of our first visits back to South Africa, we went to Cape Town, um, and we fell in love with this place. Oh, Cape Town's beautiful! And our friends invited us over to Hermanus, about an hour and a half outside of Cape Town, to come and listen to their uh, son's piano rec- recital. You might know Francois de who did the mirror translation, and. The people hosting it had this magnificent house on the edge of a nature reserve on the ragged coast and it was just an idyllic setting. Walking in there, notice all these unique pieces of art so skillfully placed throughout the house and big lounge doors invited you out onto this patio. and in the corner, like a lonely guest waiting for her date to arrive, sat the piano. <laughs> and um, eventually, all the guests moved out. Stefan came and sat at the piano, and this new sound filled the air. I mean, the, the, it seemed like the, the gentle breeze just joined the melody. The, the ocean waves just added to r- the rhythms. Even the, the light rays over the, as the sun was setting seemed to become audible as they were skipping over those, those waves and, and added to an experience that was overwhelming uh, and and what was so beautiful about this experience is that it invited you to participate in creating its beauty. I mean, what gave every note its meaning was not just that note in isolation. It was all the notes that came before that somehow still resonated in this note. And... and and that note was also pregnant with what is to come. You could feel how the present, this moment, is pregnant. <laughs> a, a testimony to its intimate past and, and a glimpse of its future that could produce possibilities beyond its past. Um, now, I, I, I tell that story because I think you will all understand that my experience of that reality of all those aspects coming together the the breeze the sound the the colors the uh, all of that added to this crescendo of music that that made that reality so rich for me now those things might have existed even if I am not aware of them. But they do not exist in the same way as they do when you become conscious of them. And so in quantum physics, many of the scientists will tell you that consciousness precedes reality, that there is something about your consciousness that in a very real way. And, you know, that, that phrase, things don't exist in the same way without consciousness, that's not just philosophical. These are kind of scientists that says this is what we observe, is consciousness participates in the creation of your reality. And so this is why I kind of touch on this story and how we understand our story in the in the biggest story because I want us to come to a place where your reality is enriched. Where you can experience the beauty and the meaning of reality to, to the highest extent because it's also possible to impoverish your reality through your consciousness. <laughs> okay, It's also possible to stand in the midst of beauty and not see it. And isn't this what Jesus came to do when he walked in the field and he saw birds and he saw flowers and in all of it, he saw God. (laughs) So when he spoke, it was always, your eye is is a window, it can either... It can either be the eye of God, <laughs> because I think it was Thomas Merton that said, the eye through which you see God is the eye through which God sees you. I, I, I like to say it a bit differently, and that is you, you only see yourself truly when you see yourself through God's eyes. You know, th- This is what changes your reality. And so I want to offer an alternative way of interpreting Genesis. Um, And I'm going to start off by maybe showing you how I used to interpret it and how that changed for me. So I would read Genesis 1 verse 1, which who can quote that? yeah very beautiful God as well. the heavens and the earth. <laughs> here we go thanks it It helped me drink my coffee <laughs> so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and I would read that, and I would imagine this big bang, the galaxy swung into existence the the planets, the stars I mean such a beautiful video we watched. I saw the other day how they now estimate, I mean, even if we have to say how big is a galaxy, it boggles the mind. A galaxy, it would, I must maybe go and, you know, find a metaphor to try and just tell us the, the, the millions of stars, the planets, just in our little one galaxy, and we, this dust of sand in this enormous galaxy. Well, they now estimate that there are at least 20 galaxies for every person alive on this planet, you know. And I just finished reading that and thought, what do you do with that? (laughs) I mean, 20 galaxies for each one of us. Then I opened the BBC report, this was about two weeks ago, saying we think we underestimated the size of our universe by a magnitude of 10 to 20. In other words, there might be 200 or 400 galaxies for each of the 7 billion people <laughs> alive. So, uh, oh, it's awesome to discover a God who is at, at least as big as this universe. Isn't that nice? <laughs> A God is not just the God of my little tribe. Of my little doctrine. <laughs> the God who confirms how right I am. <laughs> but the God who continually says, Hey, I'm looking for new ways to blow your mind. <sighs> hmm. It's not like we're trying to fit God into our mind, but God does invite us to stick our heads into Him every now and then, to have a look around and enjoy. So when I saw, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, I saw these galaxies, these planets, and and then as I continued a bit more critical study onto, okay, what did the authors mean by this text? What was their earliest thoughts? What was their intentions? I was quite surprised in one way but in another way I thought I should have thought about that I realized that when this was written neither the author nor the audience had any concept of galaxy they did not even have a concept of planet so whatever they meant by the text they did not see what I was saying <laughs> his galaxies and planets and things creating And one of the most interesting suggestions that was made right in the beginning, and I think it was Rishi, a scholar in the 11th century, actually gave this the most profound explanation and the best argument for it. He said, actually, verse 1 is not the act of creation at all. Um, God begins to create when He speaks. And so the way in which He says, you interpret those three verses the most accurately is as follows. When God began creating the land and the sky, you know, land and sky, everyone could understand what we're dealing with. When God began creating, the earth was void, uh, without form, chaos uh, covered the earth. The, the oceans, the waters covered the earth and there was darkness On the face of the deep, then God said. In other words, they are arguing that God's creative act begins in verse 3 when God speaks. Now, this was a profound alternative because instead of the view that God is the absolute origin who creates out of nothing... This actually suggests that God begins creation with the chaos that is present. (laughs) Okay. So theologically, there's a lot of kind of beautiful arguments and things that can go around that. But I want to explore something else that's beautiful in that idea. So let me put this... I wonder whether I'll put this in context. I think this, we, we've got a few days, so let me take my time. So if we put this story in the context of the environment in which it was written, it becomes even more meaningful. And what I mean by that is let's go look at when was it written, what other literature was available that might have influenced this text, uh, what, what was the environment that they wanted to address. Now, have you ever found it quite interesting that the rest of the Old Testament knows nothing about Adam and Eve or the garden stories? You know, when Jeremiah says, this city is filled with injustice and violence and sin, and you need, he doesn't stop and say, oh, but I remember Adam and Eve. You can't help yourself. Um, it's a, he doesn't do that. He can't, They just say, stop it this injustice it's not right but none of them actually writes about adam and eve there's no developed theology of original sin or the fall throughout the old testament and the reason they don't mention these stories is because they did not know about them okay so the the genesis narratives were quite late in their edition Um, Most of these scriptures were only brought together during the Babylonian exile, which was 580 BC to 530. That is where when Israel and Judah is suddenly in exile. You know, Israel and Judah were two different kingdoms that had similar stories, but they were always kind of um, different. In other words, Judah always refers to God as Yahweh. Israel refers to God as Elohim until he reveals himself to Moses. Then, then he becomes Yahweh. But their stories have different origins. And, and that's why in the Pentateuch you get two versions of every story. You get two stories of creation, two stories of Abraham's call. two. Just about every story is repeated twice. And what we don't see... But it's obvious in the original, the one will refer to God as Elohim, and the other one will refer to God as Yahweh. And it's because of these two uh, kingdoms that had similar stories, similar origins, but different views. And interestingly, they had different priesthoods. The the one had the priesthood of the Aaronites, and the other one was the Levites. they weren't complimentary about one another. When the one group wrote about the other group, it wasn't pretty at all. In fact, it's the Levites that writes that Aaron went and made a golden calf. The Aaronite scriptures knows nothing about that event. It just did not happen. Um, So eventually, both these groups are overrun by Babylon in the Babylonian exile. And what happens to most of the kingdoms when they're overrun is they lose their culture, their gods, everything, because they've obviously there's a stronger God, a more advanced civilization that has taken us over. So what happened in the middle in that area often is you'd give up your God for the new God who won. But Israel has already done this evolution, revolution from polytheism to monotheism. And so they interpret the events differently. They come into exile, but instead of seeing it as a stronger God has overcome our God, they interpret it as the one God is disciplining us and punishing us, and that's why we're in exile. But still the pressure on their whole community as slaves to just be dissolved into this new culture. For the first time, there's real motivation to bring their texts together, to work together, to preserve whatever they can of the culture they remember. And this is for the first time where the stories from the uh, Yahweh and the stories from the Elohim and people are gathered and and the priests uh, and the scribes do what they can to stitch them together and and to make sure that they don't contradict one another too obviously some things you can't help, for instance, in the first creation story, Genesis, God creates free in the free first days he creates three spaces, light and darkness. No, sky, earth, land, sea. And then the next three days he falls them. He puts the sun in the light. (laughs) He puts the moon and stars in the night. He puts the um, birds in the sky, the uh, fish in the sea. And he puts man and animals on earth. And uh, uh, and man is created last, kind of as a crescendo of God's self-expression. But in uh, the Yahweh source, Genesis 2, um, the sequence is different. <laughs> God creates man first. And then He says, oh, man's quite lonely. Let's make a lot of animals. And they make animals and tells Adam, why don't you name them? Uh, and he names them and he realizes how likeness attracts likeness. And uh, and then eventually he makes woman. So... You know, there's little differences, but they've been stitched together so beautifully because they preserve the whole culture of both these kingdoms. Now, what was interesting about the writing of Genesis 1, and I find that exploring this has so enriched my appreciation of the text, um, is that, While they are in Babylon, one of the most uh, prevalent texts of the Middle East is read to them almost weekly. It's a text called Enuma Elish. We've got this text um, on hieroglyphics and, and, and different kind of writings, more than 3000 BC. We've still got copies of this text. Um, the oldest Hebrew text I think is about 200 BC. But so they've got enuma Elis; it's read to them daily. <laughs> They're exposed to their story daily. And and by the way, the you know these stories that has developed as oral tradition, the first time that they are being written down is probably during the first kingdom, the first monarchy, when David becomes king. That is when you develop scribes and those kind of capacity for the the court of the king. And if you wanted to become a scribe, the way in which you became a scribe is you went and studied the entire text of the world. (laughs) Okay, so today... If you want to study a subject, you've got to narrow it down, narrow it down, narrow it down. And then eventually, when you're as specific as you can, you've got to choose from the 3,000 prescribed books on that subject. There's a lot of knowledge. But in those days, the entire library of the world would fit in a room. Okay, so if, if these scribes wanted to learn their skill... They go study the text that their world is familiar with. And Enuma Elish would have been the most prominent text of that day. Enuma Elish is Syrian for when God began <laughs> creating. Okay. And um, so now Israel, Judah, they find themselves uh, they find themselves in the midst of the Babylonian exile. Every time uh, the, there's a change of moon, this text is read. Every time there's a change of season, this text is read. Shall I quickly tell you the Enuma Eli story so that you know what they are subjected to and what they are going to subvert? So it begins the story of Apsu and Tiamut, the male and female personifications of chaos. Um, where, uh, and chaos is always also symbolized by water. So this was sweet and, uh, and, and salt water. And water because it's formless. Um, any form is possible when something's formless. Their um, waters commingled, they cre- created many children. And... Um, it's interesting how the story also developed even in their cultures because in the beginning Tiamut was the, the female personification of the goddess, was seen as the mother of the whole earth. It was a beautiful positive story. But in their culture, there were some real wars between male and female dominance, and it was at this period where male dominance became more prevalent in that whole area, but the story was also changed to portray Tiamut as more evil. And so, basically, Absu and Tiamut, after they have his many children, he comes one day, and this is a very short and summarized version, and he said, these kids are making so much noise. <laughs> let's get rid of them. And, and Tiamut, after some persuasion, says, okay, yes, let's do it. But one of the kids overhears this. Isn't this a lovely bedtime story? Um, One of the kids overhears it goes warn all the other kids. Um, They then rise up and they kill Apsu, the male personification of chaos. Um, Tiamut is absolutely enraged and and spawns this new army that was going to destroy all of those kids, uh, gods, um, but they choose a hero and they choose a guy called Marduk. And and Marduk said, Okay, I'll fight Tiamat for you, but if I do this, I want to be absolutely sovereign, and all of you need to worship me and give me your allegiance under any king. And all the gods, faced with this option of annihilation or loyalty to Marduk, pledge their loyalty to Marduk. He has this fight against. He sends a wind into her, bursts her body in half, and from the one half he creates the heavens, and from the other half he creates the earth. Um, now all the gods are very thankful. They, they serve him, do all their tasks, but they get bored with their tasks. So they say, Please relieve us from these boring tasks. And then he takes the blood of Kingu, one of the generals, and from that blood he creates mankind. And they become the servants. So how this fits into their politics is also interesting because there was a time where all of Syria was being overrun or Babylon was being overrun um, by another kingdom. Uh, And Babylon at that stage consisted of many little kingdoms. And they were facing the overwhelming might of this army. And one of the kings actually stood up and said, I have a plan to defeat this army, but if I do this, I want to be the absolute king. So there's actually some historic background to where this story could have been twisted into what we have today. They all agreed, they did win the battle, and that's the Tower of Babel. It's the Tower of Babylon by which we actually honored this king for delivering this whole community. And um, interestingly, mankind must know their place, that there's only a few gods and the rest of you are created to serve. Um, You see, these these myths always kind of speaks about a original state of chaos, a creative act of violence that then um, restores a new order which means we know how to deal with disorder and chaos through overwhelming violence. Now it's in, in the midst of this view of God, this view of who we are, we are made as servants and we serve the few gods who live in their palaces. It's in the midst of this is the reality where Israel and Judah finds themselves. Every weekend listening to the same story that one of them starts spinning down a different story. And this story is going to be the most subversive text written. You see, the scriptures weren't written to be just another religious text. Its motivation was to deliver people from religious superstition. And so as they sit there and they start experiencing and the experience of God is very different from this malduk uh, and experiences that they're being bombarded with. As they start writing, they take phrases and ideas that's familiar to their culture, where they find themselves. And so they start the text with the exact same words when God began creating land and the sky, the, the waters covered the sea. And there was darkness. You know that text that we say, there was darkness on the face of the deep? If you read it in Hebrew, it says, and there was darkness on the face of temut which is the Hebrew equivalent of Tiamut, the goddess, the female goddess of, of chaos. But what, so you can imagine people, in their culture, listening and say, "Ah, oh, we know this story. It's uh, familiar, it's the same, but, but then it's got this surprising different twist, because first of all, there's nothing evil about this chaos. <laughs> there's nothing threatening about Timutan, and maybe even this text was, in a way a redemption of the feminine to say there's nothing bad or evil about this formlessness. In fact, like Marduk, God also sends a wind, but His wind doesn't come to destroy. His wind comes to hover uh, and vibrate over that formless chaos to kind of prepare it for the, the creative beauty that is possible for it. And then in verse 3, instead of this dominant God that says, now let's show you how to make something out of nothing. In verse 3, there's this beautiful whisper of desire that calls forth the possibility that is inherent in the chaos. See, when God wants to make the fish of the sea, He doesn't just makes them in a heavenly aquarium and then dumps them in the sea and they say, look at me, what I can do. Now, when God wants to create, and remember the sea is that symbol of the formlessness, the chaos. When God creates, He actually speaks to His creation. And He says, won't you bring forth life? It's a much more cooperative, participatory way of creating. That God creates through His creation. That <laughs> His creative act is not something reserved for Him alone, but it is the very quality with, which He gives freely to His creation to say, You can participate with me. Now, why is this a different way of understanding the Genesis story? You see, this this old way of understanding it that I clung to for a long time, is just, okay, Yeah, we've got the Bible telling us how things was. It's like an exploration of a historic event which there's some beautiful poetry in it, but I still see that as kind of helping my understanding with where it all began, how it all looked. But maybe what the author is trying to say is not not to convey an historic event, but is to help us understand the process by which God always creates. And the process by which God always creates is He gets right in the middle of your mess. He gets right in the middle of your chaos and he starts hovering there. And he says, this chaos, this mess, I see such beauty and such possibility. I see such meaning that can flow from here and I'm going to continue to whisper, What is possible for you? Can you see how it changes the story? Instead of this dominant God standing at the beginning of our story with a blueprint in his hand and saying, this is the way it's going to be. Maybe God is the possibility that stands in front of us and says, do you know what's possible? I want to invite you to co-author the most exciting story ever told. Does that give a different view of Genesis 1? I've just touched on a few things. But somehow we can sense that people perceived God differently than the culture that was suppressing them. They perceived of a God who didn't just think of you as an afterthought to be a servant, to do the things that the gods didn't want to do. But what we see in the Genesis account is this vision of a God who is so present within His creation that He sees you as nothing less than the visible expression of His own image and likeness. He sees you not as an afterthought but as the crescendo of His self-expression. See, why did God do all of this? I mean, what was He thinking? Um, Was God just, in the beginning, just terribly bored and thought, I need some entertainment. Let's create something. Was this just a a grumpy old judge in the empty courtroom thinking, I need some victims? And here you are. Or was this... um, was this the God that Jesus spoke about, the God of infinite possibilities, who continually imagines new ways of being Himself? <laughs> See, God, the Father, Son, and Spirit didn't just kind of say, let's create a creature. That can irritate us for all eternity. Let's make something that will frustrate us, drive us to tears. And just, know Jesus speaks about this place in the beginning, John 17, 24, where he says, I wish you could be there with me. In this place where you could witness the love with which He loved me. The honor with which my Father honored me. He doesn't speak about eternity as some boring, changeless, static place. He speaks about this eternity as a dynamic movement of relationship. Kind of what quantum physics want to describe the origin of our universe now. A field of infinite possibility. is kind of the words they use. But what they see from the very beginning is there's these dynamic possibilities moving, moving. And somewhere something bursts into existence. It is this God... Who in the beginning, in this place of dynamic relationship and fellowship, this overflow of joy, this God who, who needs nothing, imagines you, has a realization of one of the possibilities of who He is. <laughs> Woo! This is why my Master Eckhart once wrote and said, If you could truly, truly see right now what makes you, you, you would see nothing less than the infinite generosity of God pouring Himself out into your existence. That's what makes you, you. It's the Word becoming flesh. (laughs) You see, in Jesus, we do not meet a God that calls us to a higher level of spirituality. We meet a God who enters our humanity. (laughs) A God who doesn't call us to say, you need to be more like me. But the God who says, you are what I wanted to be. (laughs) (sighs) I so love it when there's that atmosphere where you can say something like that and people know it's true although their head says put that in the heresy category there's something in the heart that says this resonates we can work out how this fits into our theology later (laughs) But in this moment, just enjoy the fact that God enjoys you. That God sees in you nothing less than His own presence, finding a moment, an event in which God becomes conscious of Himself. <laughs> See, we can witness, when I was on that mountains, how, how villain, you can so appreciate what people throughout the ages have, has appreciated, how these mountains somehow symbolizes the faithfulness of God, these unchanging structures. It's almost like God is asleep in the mountains, and then you, then you see the breeze move over the fields, the, the animals jumping and it's almost like God is stirring, God is, God is waking up but in you God becomes conscious even of himself <sighs> awesome awesome So, our meta-narrative, how does that change our meta-narrative? Instead of that story that says, it once was perfect and they blew it, but we hope that one day it will be great again. And now we're just trying to work our way through the middle. You see, that kind of uh, meta-narrative creates a relationship between you and reality that's quite negative. Spirituality becomes either a denial of reality, or a hope to escape reality. That one day we're going to be out of this mess and we can't wait for that to happen. I'm not interested at all in that kind of spirituality. I think what Jesus comes to introduce us is a God whom He says, please change your minds. The kingdom of God is here. And my prayer is that His will be done on earth. <laughs> and my, my revelation for you is that God, the true God, is God with us. In other words, the true God is not God without us. <laughs> The true God is the God who, in the person of Jesus, in the incarnation, steps into our existence and says, I've got no interest in being God by myself, with myself, or for myself. The only way in which I want to be God is with man, <laughs> for man, and as man. <laughs> Woo glory. Now I know it can be misunderstood in so many beautiful ways, so many difficult ways. And I think people ask Meister Eckhart as well, are you saying that you are God? And he said, no, actually listen carefully. What I'm saying is that without God, I am nothing. And therefore, whatever I truly am, is the infinite generosity of God pouring Himself out into my existence. <laughs> so how, back to how does this change the metanarrative. Instead of living in this place where I just want to escape the present, where I've got a nostalgic longing for some perfect past and hopefully it will one day again get better. This metanarrative says... Right in the midst of your mess, right in the midst of your chaos, it is right here that the, that the Creator does His best work. This is where God is most present in this moment. This is the story where at this moment all the stuff that has happened in the past is still resonating. Yet, it is not a story that inevitably pushes you in one direction, and that is what history often would want to do, and our own personal stories, if we develop a wrong relationship with them, your memories will tell you that your future is simply a repetition of your past. Your disappointments are gonna continue. Your failures are gonna haunt you. Your the, the future holds nothing new. You've it's set a path that is inevitable. But the God of infinite possibilities is the God who in this moment says, we, we, I'm gonna create space between the past and the future. I'm gonna create a moment of creativity where we can choose what from the past continues and where we can suddenly realize that there are possibilities beyond this past that can be realized in my life. Is that good news? (laughs) Your future doesn't have to be a repetition of the past. This God comes into the moment. You see what what the past wants to do in a negative relationship with it is so squeeze your present that it takes hold of your future. And have you ever been with people who are not present? Kind of replaying a conversation that happened in the past and they kind of anticipating what's coming. But the significance And the beauty of this moment is lost to them. There's nothing that makes you more present than the awareness that you are loved. That moment in which you fall in love. I remember me and Mary Ann, you know, when I told her that night how I felt, and she responded. And said, the feeling's mutual. That night I would kind of sleep and wake up and think, did I dream? No, she said it. That actually happened. The, the feeling's mutual. And the next day, for the first day in my life, I just forgot to eat. I just wanted to know, where's Mary? She's in the lounge and I'll just go sit. And <laughs> I, I didn't know what day it is, whether it's morning or afternoon. That, that moment in which you discover you are loved. Suddenly, the present becomes more significant than anything else, and I kind of, you know, I was just so in love, and and I knew why I was in love, but I was kind of puzzled by why she in love. I mean, she sees something amazing, maybe, and I'm going to milk this for as long as I can and try and keep her in the dark, but I kind of know myself, I'm not that amazing, but, you know, I'm enjoying this moment. (laughs) And after a few weeks, I thought maybe everything I knew about myself was a lie. And this beauty... And this meaning that she sees in me, maybe that's the truth. And maybe I should allow love to define me. <laughs> oh. And that makes you present. That brings you to the moment where where you think, okay, now I can reinterpret my past in the light of a moment that is so large that it can swallow up any failure, swallow up any pain, to say this moment of love is larger and it creates possibilities for your future. (laughs) See, this is where the second interpretation of Genesis becomes so valuable. That this is the God who steps right into your chaotic world right into your crap. And he says, this is where I do my best work. Sorry, I've been in the States for a while. Is crap a bad word? Yeah. I always use some excuse from, um, somewhere, from somewhere else. It kind of works. But he steps right into the middle of your confusion, confrontation, contradiction. And he says, this is where I can call forth the beauty, the meaning that is possible for you. <laughs> it means your story right now, where you at, is the most exciting place you could ever be. <laughs> God has not written your whole story to come. God's the one who says, let's co-author. Let's co-write this story. If a story's going to be written, we're going to do it together. (laughs) Awesome. Papa, thank you for this sense of possibility. This sense of meaning that just settles into us this morning. Oh, for understanding what you understand. Thank, us, thank you that we can, we can, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, we can look into your face with unveiled faces. We can gaze until we become aware of a gaze more intensely focused on us. Until we see through you, your eyes And it is seeing what you see that transforms us. Thank you, Papa. Amen. Thank you for listening to the I Destiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.uk.